so often I find myself on panels and being asked, what can I do? How can how can I contribute yeah. in a meaningful way? And I think traditionally the answer has been, you know, if you're looking to develop a project on traditional land, you should be consulting with the Indigenous people who relied on that land and who may still rely on that land and look for ways to support them. And that has often meant by way of impact benefit agreements or perhaps resource revenue sharing, etc. This podcast is brought to you by Dentons, the world's largest law firm with a global team that builds agile, tailored solutions to meet the local, national, and global needs of private and public clients of any size in 183 locations serving 75 countries. Hi everyone, my name is Heather Barnhouse, partner and lawyer in our Edmonton office. Welcome to my podcast where I explore the topic of women in entrepreneurship and leadership and the ecosystem supporting the growth of this segment. Today I'm joined by Alicia Dubois, CEO of Alberta Indigenous Opportunities Corporation. I'm excited to talk to her today about her insight into Indigenous economy and opportunities that exist. Welcome, Alicia. Thank you. Thanks, Heather. Can you give our listeners a little bit of background about yourself? Sure. Probably like a lot of your listeners, I'm also a lawyer by training. Um, I uh, That was where I spent the first decade of my professional career. On a personal level, I am going to talk today, of course, about the Indigenous economy. And um, to share a bit about myself, I have Algonquin roots from my father's side, and my mom is not Indigenous. And really, my aim in throughout my education was really always just to be in a position to be able to contribute in some fashion. And I've had an interesting path in the sense that um, I started off in the law and then made my way into finance, which was something I never anticipated. When I was practicing law, I was first a Crown Prosecutor, and then I um, also moved into child protection and child welfare. And so in both of those roles, I had a chance to work quite closely with Indigenous accused and also Indigenous families. Specifically, I worked for Native Child and Family Services of Toronto, so that gave me a very focused insight into uh, family matters related to Indigenous peoples that live in Ontario. And that, of course, being my roots, it was it was nice to get to work in that space and and honestly learn more about myself because right. my uh, my family moved from Ontario to Fort McMurray when I was very young, and so that distance meant that I didn't get a lot of exposure to my traditional heritage. And so we quickly made friends with Indigenous roots in Fort McMurray. And growing up, I just felt a bit more connected to um, certain Alberta nations as opposed to my own. So the exposure when I was at Native Child in Toronto was something that was very fulfilling, not just from a professional standpoint, but also from a personal standpoint. I got some insight that I didn't have before that. Hmm, Interesting. Yeah, so it's interesting because I I made my way into finance mostly because my role at Native Child was a contract position. 
And then I was looking, you know, for work that would come after my contract was done. And I had never worked in finance, but one of my dear friends had a contact that worked at that worked at one of the banks and was leading a legal team at one of the banks. And she said, you should really meet with him again. She said, he's looking to grow his team. And I think that you'd really enjoy working together. And that was actually my introduction into the bank system. So I was doing compliance legal work at one of the big banks. And that was my first job in finance. My my undergrad was neuroscience. So I had never <laughs> taken a finance course in my life. So um, nothing like diving in. And it opened up the door for me to get to support uh, the Indigenous market space. So after a couple of years, I was invited to leave my role in the legal team and head up the Indigenous markets group for for one of the banks. And that led me to um, CIBC's commercial team, where they had not had anybody lead the team before. They needed a strategy. They needed to find the right leader to create the right team nationally and um, and to be able to help grow the portfolio. <laughs> That's a very, very long, circuitous way to uh, to get to where you are. But I think it's uh, it's interesting that you know you you talk about how some of the, some some of the stops along your your journey have been not only fulfilling from a career perspective, but also really kind of brought you back to your roots and and to help you learn a little bit more kind of about who you are and and you know what your what your ties are to these communities which not everybody can do in their uh, in their career path so I think that's uh, that's really fascinating yes that's true I'm very grateful for that and it's interesting because my time with um, with the crown's office and also with child protection even when there is a real concerted effort to make those systems culturally sensitive, it's incredible how there are barriers that are set up innately within them. And so when I was invited to support Indigenous access to capital at the bank, it was actually my somewhat disheartening experience, actually, with the social systems and the justice system that made me realize, oh, this might actually be the most effective and efficient way that I can contribute to Indigenous wellness and I really brought my own personal experience and my professional experiences to the table. And those were the things that helped to drive and shape the strategy that I created. Yeah, and a very different lens that you would bring to that than, you know, maybe some other people who would come at it without a legal background or without those, you know, without those roots. So very, um, very interesting. I want to focus a little bit leading off of what you've what you've just talked about and sort of the different ways that you could participate and and have uh, some sort of meaningful contribution. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the facts or the you know the the information that's out there about indigenous economy that maybe are a bit of a well-kept secret? Sure. So I will do that. And, and as I do that, I, I will admit that I'm pulling on data and research that has been compiled and analyzed by the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business. And, and I'll say up front, I'm the co-chair of the board for the CCAB, as we refer to it. So um, so I'm, I'm proud to be able to put the, the stats out there because there's a very robust Indigenous economy in Canada that often goes unnoticed. You know, before contact and settlement, Indigenous people had very dynamic and diverse economies. 
Um, it was a it was a very active trade market between indigenous tribes, and of course they would travel with the seasons and gather and and trade the goods that they would either grow or hunt, etc. So you know the lands that we all live on right now was very active with a number of different tribes using it as their gathering place or their um, travel route in order to get to gathering places to engage in trade. But if we jump to today, Indigenous people contribute over $30 billion annual to Canada's GDP. And this figure continues to grow. Yeah. And if you look deeper into that, the private economy, so again, that entrepreneurial spirit alone contributes roughly $12 billion annually. And what's Mm. interesting is that when you factor that in with the fact that the Indigenous population is younger and also growing much faster than the rate of Canada's general population, it really highlights the importance of skill development, labour and innovation to not just Indigenous communities and their wellness, but to Canada's economy more generally. And this is a part of the conversation we often don't have. If you look at Indigenous people and their entrepreneurial spirit, they actually have a pace of creating new business that is nine times that of the Canadian average. The Indigenous business community accounts for about 50,000 plus businesses. Of those, 12% are large community-owned firms. And those community-owned firms are what we would refer to as economic development corporations. So specifically in Canada, we have over 600 First Nations. And those 600 First Nations, for the most part, as of now, have constituted a separate economic body, which we refer to as the ECDEV, the Economic Development Corporation. And really, for the most part, those corporations have a purpose that serves one or two or a combination of both purposes. And that is one, to provide employment opportunities for the community citizens, or two, to drive revenues, which are then shared in part back to the community so that they can further support social programming for their community citizens. Often, these these devs um, are going concerns, they're looking to generate revenue, but they're also social purpose vehicles for the community. Right. So that's an important distinction. Yeah, that's really, that's, that's really fascinating. And you know, the, the interesting thing is, is that I, as you said, you know, those are, those are impressive statistics, but they're so well kept uh, there's such a well-kept secret that I don't think many people know the degree or the strength to which, you know, the the indigenous people's uh, economic contribution really builds to uh, to Canada's GDP, and as you say, is continuing perhaps to outpace um, some of the other entrepreneurs that we would see in the uh, in the Canadian economy. So that's fascinating. Thanks for shedding the the light on those statistics. With that, uh, and I guess knowing that, what are a couple of ways that private and public entities can foster growth in this Indigenous economy and contribute to economic reconciliation? Yes, I love that question because I find this fascinating. And so often I find myself on panels and being asked, 
what can I do? How can, how can I contribute yeah. in a meaningful way? And I think traditionally the answer has been, you know, if you're looking to develop a project on traditional land, you should be consulting with the indigenous peoples who relied on that land and who may still rely on that land and look for ways to support them. And that has often meant by way of impact benefit agreements or perhaps resource revenue sharing, et cetera. Right. And at the end of the day, the the challenge with those, and, and they have evolved over the years, so they're not as strictly dollar-focused as they used to be, but when you're focused purely on compensating by like through money only for yep. use of traditional land, it, it doesn't drive prosperity. It actually enhances dependency because without there being a meaningful level of participation and engagement with the industry or the company or the project that is being established there, it doesn't change the legacy for for future generations. So -hmm. the examples that I like to point out that really do drive capacity building, skill development, and a much more holistic view of wellness for the Indigenous communities and peoples are first procurement and also enhancing access to capital. So procurement specifically is very interesting. There's some fabulous examples, if you believe it or not, coming out of the States actually about how, yes, about how a a federal procurement policy can really drive results. So the Alaskan tribes are known to be extraordinarily wealthy, um, like billions and billions of dollars of revenue a year. It's quite outstanding. And it's said that a lot of their beginnings um, started because the federal government um, has a procurement policy for its, um, what we would refer to as crown corporations, where a certain percentage of the supply chain of those crown corporations are to include tribal businesses. And so... Our own federal government just very recently put in place a new target for itself, which is that we call it the five and five, because they would like to see the federal government and, and, and its very massive engagement in, in goods and services. It's the largest procurer in Canada. Mm. Yep. They would like to see their procurement and involvement of Indigenous business in the supply chain increase to 5% over the next five years. If we look at it, mm. what their level is at today, it's actually around 0.3%. So they oh, have wow. a lot of work to do. Yeah, even though, yes, even though they've, they've established a specific program to enhance Aboriginal engagement in their procurement practices. So even though there was a program in place specifically to answer this, they realized that you know, there's they're missing something. There's a gap, and so yeah. they're working. They're working, hopefully, quite closely with um, with their procurement groups to enhance that and to meet that target. And what's really interesting is that we've seen incredible success in the Alberta oil sands when it comes to procurement partnerships. And I'll give you just a little bit of stats about that, just in in contrast to the federal government. So just up and around Fort McMurray alone, annually, $1.8 billion in the supply chain is through engagement with Indigenous firms annually. 
Now, if I give you the dollar value of the federal government, the federal <coughs> government level is between 60 and 100 million annually versus 1.2 wow. in the oil sense. Yeah. Wow. And so this is a great example. And it, we can break it down. So in 2017, Imperial, um, Imperial supply chain um, and engagement with Indigenous businesses amounted to about 225 million. The same year, Syncrude was about 300 million. And Suncor, who is known as a procurement champion to the CCAB, actually yeah. engaged in 836 million. Wow. Um, yes. Um, and that was in 2019. So really significant. And it's amazing what that means because it's the unemployment rate for the, the communities that are part of this supply chain is extraordinarily low. Yeah. The annual income that is um, realized by individuals in those communities on average is over $70,000 a year, whereas the Canadian average is closer to just shy of 50,000 a year. So you can wow. see like this is, yeah. this is a real opportunity to affect progress, change, financial sustainability. And of course that means a much more holistic view of social wellness for those communities. So the, the power oh, of procurement is very outstanding. And then yeah. the other is really enhancing access to capital. And there's an ecosystem there that we need to sort of draw on in order to build that out. So there's a few different ways that we've seen that happen. And I'm wearing both my CIDC hat and my CCAB hat and my AIOC hat. There's a whole lot of acronyms for you. <laughs> Lots of hats. Um, <laughs> and hats, yes. <clears throat> we see the, the benefit of industry partnerships. So, you know, and, and, and that includes, of course, the procurement side of things. But when, when there's a desire for industry to partner with Indigenous groups, it, it's amazing what we're able to see come out of that. And that can be with the support of government guarantees. Um, the the yeah. Alberta Indigenous Opportunities Corporation, which I'm leading now, is, um, is an incredible program. I, I, I really feel it's thought leadership. Uh, it's that mandate and the ability to really move the needle for Indigenous groups and Canada, actually, simultaneously, is what I find so exciting about our mandate. When there aren't government guarantees, I have seen instances where the corporate partner offers up a guarantee in order to support Indigenous engagement. Bruce Power has, in Ontario, has an incredible program with the SON, and that's the name that we apply to a number of First Nations where Bruce Power does business. And they've created an incredible partnership with, um, with the nations. And as part of that, put dollars aside in order to support Indigenous purchase of specific buildings and then you know, they get um, they get the benefit of the leasing those buildings back to Bruce Power. So it's very it's, right. it's an interesting reciprocal relationship. So there's um, there's an, a number of ways that you know corporate Canada and government can engage with Indigenous groups, and and the beauty of it is, and I saw this firsthand when I was at CIBC, is you know our thinking at first is that. This is the right thing to do as a responsible corporate citizen. And, right. and in a sense, you are responding to a very important public policy call for Canada by 
contributing to economic reconciliation and the like. But what is often mm-hmm. not focused on is how smart the business is. Like this, hmm. this makes Tell for good business. Yeah, it's commercially viable business. That's where you're going to find the best partnerships. And so, of course, um, you know, I can I can talk about a few examples where we've seen partnerships yeah. like this happen. So, um, the first one that I really had a chance to read about and get to know involves Moose Cree. So, this is a community that sits on um, the edge of James Bay in northern Ontario. And they partnered with OPG, which is Ontario Power Generator, and they created a a massive hydro um, plant. I believe it has four turbines. And Moose Cree Cree has a significant ownership stake. It's it's on their traditional land. It impacts their water flow. And their ownership piece is significant. It's, It's a large project. There's a significant borrowing that needed to go into Moose Cree actually gaining their equity position. But the way that their payout was structured, we refer to it as a waterfall, is the payout right. is quite heavy at the outset. And then as the years progress, the amount of equity that they need to pay back is um, is reduced. And so as the years move on, they get more and more access to the revenue generated by the facility. And it's all based upon rate payers. So, you know, there's a power purchase agreement. They know what they're going to get per kilowatt. It's, it's a known quantity. And so they're able to have confidence in what those annual you know revenues are going to right. be. So um, the beauty of it is that, you know, I think the waterfall payout was, I'm going by memory, I think it's about 11 years. And so they're they're actually getting close now to being completely done their payout. And then once it's done for the life of this asset, which is, you know, going to be probably, you know, anywhere between 45, 55 years is $25 million a year. That's significant. That's hugely significant. Yeah. 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 And you see them, you see them just, and Moose Moose Cree is a very innovative community. And of course, with that type of financial sustainability, they can really put their innovative thoughts into action. And And it's amazing to see some of the things they've done. They're the first First Nation in Canada to hire on a five-year contract a drone company because they're on an island off of the mainland to deliver drugs and vital goods to their citizens because of course being on James Bay you know the winters are pretty harsh and uh, right and travel is not always very easy so you know it's interesting to see them you know, getting involved with uh, with drones as a means of delivery. I think many of us have talked about this, but you yeah, have, but they've actually done it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And they did that, Very I think, cool. two years ago now. So, yeah. For those of us who are in Alberta, we are familiar with um, the partnership between Suncor and Mikisukri and Fort Mackay. And that's, of course, around the um, East Tank Farm. And then right. most recently, the AIOC really proudly had our first announcement um, involving Cascade and six Alberta First Nations. So yeah. these types, yeah, these types of partnerships, it's it's the tangible benefits, of course. There's employment, skill development, stable income, etc. But what's really much more nuanced, but I, I would suggest is even more powerful, is that there's a mind shift that happens with ownership that 
helps to build a new view of the future for these communities' use. And, you know, we, we, we talk about the suicide rates that, that we see across the country with Indigenous youth, and, and it's, it's devastating for the communities. And when I've talked to chiefs, the, the thing about this ownership approach is that it shifts the focus on what the future might be for Indigenous youth, and it instills hope, and that's incredibly powerful. And so mm-hmm. as, as positive as the solid income is and all of the rest, the other component of it that's very important is that new mindset about the future and hope. Yeah, I agree. It's really interesting. And I mean, you've talked a lot about some really innovative ways that those deals got put together and how that created a a lasting um, and meaningful ability for those communities to be involved and at the table and, you know, rewarded and and really participating economically but also as you've alluded to with the with the youth it also opens doors for them um, and and gives them an opportunity to be able to participate in these projects and to learn the new skills and and all of that so I, I love how how not only does the deal make sense today but the deal continues to make sense through the you know the asset ownership and or through the ability for the young uh, the younger generation to participate and to learn about it, and then also to see the the fruits of a of a very economically, you know, intelligent deal and how it got put together and and what that means for the community. So I I, I love how it builds the legacy and sets the standard for you know for the next generation to be able to participate. I wonder if you so we've talked about some of these great you know the power of these partnerships and some great examples of what is being done in in Alberta as well as in in Ontario and and elsewhere in the country. Can we focus can you give us some insight on some of the barriers the long-standing barriers that exist that have previously limited uh, the indigenous access to capital and can you focus on why those barriers exist and, and and what that's done? Sure. So I would say the biggest challenge <coughs> to um, access to capital for Indigenous groups and peoples has a lot to do with the land designation that they sit on. So unlike yep. mainstream Canada, who is used to working in the realm of fee simple land, which of yep. course is mortgageable, that's not the case for Indigenous nations. And so the tough part here is that financial institutions are so used to working within that fee simple structure that when they start looking at crown land and they realize, oh, like we can't take it, they get challenged with how do we perfect security if it doesn't look like what we're used to it looking like. Now, not right. to say, not to say, and this is an important thing to to highlight, especially for anybody who's working with financial institutions, there are other examples of this in the country where we've all managed quite easily to wrap our minds around it. So if you look around the University of British Columbia, the UBC owns a lot of land that includes yeah. residential homes outside of the university's, you know, sort of recognized bounds. And right. they actually work based upon a leasehold. So it allows people to buy or build homes, create their homes there, and it's yet not fee simple land. 
Another right, example right. of this, of course, is airports. That's crown land. Yeah. That's under yeah. like, from a division of power standpoint. That's that's federal land, and yet we still see companies being able to build enterprises in and around airports in order to support the operation of the airports. So it's not yeah. that we don't have examples of it. It's that I think there's other nuances. There's there's media which tends to focus sadly on the negative that has created a certain level of apprehension within financial institutions in engaging with Indigenous groups, and that's very unfortunate. Mm -hmm. The beauty of Indigenous groups from a security standpoint is that they can't go under. Indigenous groups do not (laughs) go bankrupt, right? They're funded by the federal government, and while... If there's poor management of an Indigenous group, then that Indigenous group will have to be um, supported through some of the federal government's default management programming. And there's three levels to that from sort of, you know, let us help you a little bit to, you know, let us give you more support to let us take over. Those are sort of the three, <laughs> the three levels. Right. The three. And, yeah. in, and interestingly, some nations, and I remember having to have these conversations with my risk partners at CIBC, some nations, for political reasons, will actually voluntarily engage in one of the lower tier levels, because it's their way of managing the pressure that they have to spend, spend, spend in the, in the nation. Yes. And so when they, yeah. yeah, so they will voluntarily engage in these you know, financial Programs. management yeah. structures, yeah, so that they yeah. can help manage some of that political pressure. So, yeah, so the interesting thing at the end of the day, and it's not the basis upon which you would ever lend, of course, because, you know, going into third party management for a nation is truly devastating. It takes years and years for them to dig themselves out of a circumstance like that. So as a lender, you really do have an obligation to your client to be doing appropriate due diligence. Um, appropriate analysis of the financials and make sure that you're not doing something that is going to put them in a position of high risk simply because you know they'll never go under and you'll always get paid back even though it might take a little bit longer. So you yeah. know, that's not the that's not the way to uh, to operate and build your portfolio, but it is certainly um, a good comment to raise when you know you have a good deal, when you know that um, it's a deal that not only serves your client, but also serves the bank. I mean, we're in it for business. Yep. Um, yeah. And and when people can't seem to wrap their minds around um, around the structure because they're not used to the, um, to the security nuances that are so typical of Indigenous business or, or government. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah. And then um, some of the mm-hmm. other barriers, too... We talked about economic development corporations and and them being akin to crown corps for indigenous governments. And and interestingly, a lot of the financial institutions um, haven't really caught on to that from from a risk analysis standpoint of indigenous ECDEVs. If the economic development corporation has a guarantee from its government entity, so the First Nation, and we go back to the First Nation not being able to go under, et cetera. Really, these entities should not be classified like a diversified company, which means like a mainstream company, because they're not. They're different. When they have a First Nation guarantee, they should actually be risk-rated 
like a public sector entity. So like a municipality or a hospital or a school or a university. Because like those entities, the majority of their funding comes from government. They may still have an obligation to generate revenue, but they do receive government funding. And it's actually that government funding that gives them a great risk rating. And of course, a great risk rating is directly correlated with a very cost-effective um, borrowing rate. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it's important for, for nations to understand how they're being analyzed by their financial institution because it will give them a lot of insight into why their rates are what they are. Mm-hmm. And then, um, yeah, and then another restriction, and, and we're going to go back to the Indian Act, which is, of course, what, you know, creates the land as classified as crown land is right. section 8990 of the Indian Act um, is in place to restrict access to assets that are located on reserves. And section 90 specifically speaks to assets acquired via settlements with the Queen. So here we're talking about um, trust assets or investment assets. And the solution yeah. that FIs can can use to get around that is by getting a section 89 and or 90 waiver. And that and that waiver then comes by way of Van Council resolution, which is the legal yeah. constituting document that allows the First Nation to contract into um, a lending situation and, and establish all of the necessary security so that they can access that capital. So that waiver is an appropriate form of security. But what I've noticed in recent, honestly, recent months is that more nations are starting to disagree with signing that Section 8990 waiver. And I think it's because there are there's some legal opinions that, you know, they ought not be in a position to have to give up their right at the end of oh, the day. Yeah, yeah. Oh. And I mean, then there's a history, right, of Indigenous people oh, yeah, being of um, yeah. uh, put in a position to be giving up all kinds of rights. And so, you know, there's, um, there's an interesting trend in that direction. But at the end of the day, in many respects, it might be very tough to get your deal done with risk if you don't have that waiver in hand. Yeah. And then, yeah. you know, and then just basically the, the final barrier really is it's, an, it's a niche space. And if you go back to the stats and the, the tendency for Indigenous peoples to be entrepreneurial in spirit and you know, banking a new startup company is really challenging. So if you yeah. go to one of the large, you know, one of the big banks, they will require you to put forward three years of audited financial statements. But if you're within a segment that is incredibly entrepreneurial, the chances of you having three years of solid audited financial statements that a bank will be able to lend on is really tough. And that's why there's a very important rule for credit unions to to step in. And even the Aboriginal financial institutions, which are governed by NACA, the, um, the Aboriginal financial institutions, there's 58 of them nationally. And they are really key when it comes to supporting seed funding for entre- for Indigenous entrepreneurs. They not only will provide the seed funding necessary to get a business off the ground, but they have incredible education and 
offerings also that really help teach entrepreneurs the necessary financial and business acumen that they need in order to be effective business owners. So there's other ways to get to, to capital other than the big FIs. Yeah. Interesting. That that was really, really insightful. I mean, I, I certainly work with a number of clients who have formed, um, you know, partnerships with First Nations and have solved in, in most cases, they've solved the, you know, the financial aspect. And that obviously can take any number of shapes and, and forms depending on the creative deal that's at the table. But I didn't realize the, you know, the, the specific nuance of how to work best with your financial institution um, to, to really kind of streamline that. So that was that was really insightful. Thanks for that uh, that insight. Can you what are what are we solving for here? Like if we are creating, uh, if we can overcome these barriers and we've got some great examples of what these partnerships are, where does that get us to? So you know what I solve for every day really is how do I support economic equality? And there's so many people who have uh, been focusing on this work and who do incredible work across the country. But that's ultimately what we're looking for. We're looking for ways by which we can balance the playing field where Indigenous Mm -hmm. people can be actively engaged in the economy, actively building partnerships, actively sitting at the governance table and really allowing their lived experience to shape some of the conversations being had. At the end of the day, I mean, we see a lot of very interesting news stories that involve resource development or pipelines, et cetera, and the interface between those projects and Indigenous groups across Canada. And at the end of the day, it's very important for us to get those partnerships right. We we will be bypassed by investors as long as these tensions continue to be front page and the primary news out of Canada. We, We need to create the necessary ecosystems to facilitate Indigenous engagement and partnership and to share in the wealth really for the first time yeah. Since, settlement, since yeah. settlement. And it's only once we start to see that equalization that we'll be in a position to really see what Canada's economic potential is, because yeah. that's when we'll start to invest meaningful, start to attract meaningful investment to our country. And all of us need that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's exciting to think about what that possibility could look like, though, given the, you know, the very limited sample size of what you've you've talked about so far. There's so much opportunity and and so many creative ways to to get deals done, which I think I think you're right that people get sort of constrained by, well, we've never done it that way before. And therefore, that that that's a barrier to thinking about how it how it could be. Whereas I think the reality is, is that there is actually it's almost like a blank slate. Like there's so much opportunity and so much potential for creativity uh, that you shouldn't be limited by that in thinking about how to um, how to get deals done. Exactly, and it's through those experiences that we're going to we're going to experience a stronger Canada. There's yeah. a lot of there's a lot of undercurrent and tension between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples. And sadly, I think it's because we've all missed out on 
a real education, a truthful education. And, you know, I like to think that most Canadians, if they understood the real lived experience and history that Indigenous peoples in Canada have endured, that they wouldn't tolerate it. But it was not made public and it wasn't part of the education. And so both sides are robbed from a good relationship. And from the ability to have a real conversation about it. Yeah, precisely. And the, and and what I love about business is that it's like sport. You give people <laughs> from very different backgrounds a common objective where everybody wins and there's a celebration that is experienced for all. We're going yeah. to see change and we're going to see a shift in our narrative. And I just can't imagine anything better. Yeah, I I agree. Talking about that and and the you know the opportunity to to really have the conversation and to to be educated about it. Do you have any uh, any recommendations for resources that our listeners can can access in order to raise awareness and to really to really find out more? I do. <laughs> so <laughs> when I was at CIBC, I I should have bought. Uh, like a serious investment stake in a few books because <laughs> I bought dozens and dozens and dozens of copies and made sure that I brought them to the different groups that invited oh, me great. to come and talk about Indigenous markets. So I'll share that list. And it yeah. starts off first with the Inconvenient Indian. And this has now been out for a number of years. It's an incredible read. It's a historical read about Indigenous peoples in North America. And and the, the argument there is that you can't really separate Canada from the state because pre-settlement, there was no such thing. It was Turtle Island. Like that's the reference yeah. to, to North America. And there weren't those artificial uh, boundaries put in place. And so it's interesting through... Um, Thomas King's writing to get a feel for the North America of that time and then also in contrast what Indigenous peoples in in North America experience today and it's such a great read Um, you'll laugh out loud like there's true (laughs) Indigenous humor and you know for people who work with Indigenous people it's the best humor ever Um, it I, I never have a meeting where there's not a lot of laughs and and just really like light-hearted, warm-hearted, good humor. And and it's in that book. There will be other times where you'll just sigh and shake your head and wonder, you know, how could that possibly have gone on? But um, but it's not all heavy, which is which is great. Mm, that's, that's great. Yeah. And then another one that um, that I read that I found quite eye-opening. And it's interesting because I was raised knowing about residential school. And so, and it's funny because I grew up thinking everybody knew about residential school. And of course, that's false. But, you know, it goes to show what you're exposed to and and what your assumptions are in light of that. But Indian Horse is a book. And and I know that it's out in a movie form. Okay. Um, I've not been able to watch the movie, but I, I love books. Generally speaking, I don't watch a movie if I've read the book because, of mm, course, yep. in my own mind, I've created exactly what I've wanted. And, but yep. I've heard the movie is good, but the book is just phenomenal. And it's, it's by Richard Wagonese, who is 
an incredible Indigenous author who sadly um, passed on a few years ago. But his books in general are absolutely poetic and touching and um, eye-opening, awe-inspiring, all of those things. He's a, he's a beautiful writer. And then the other that is, um, I think, eye-opening for a lot of Canadians is the 21 Things You May Not Know About the Indian Act. So, obviously, it's about 21 Things You May Not Know About the Indian Act. <laughs> Pretty straightforward. <laughs> so it's very good. Yeah, but it's good because it sets out, um, it highlights essentially, like, how are these systemic barriers created? Do they exist? What do they look like? What has been the echo effect of them? And that's a very important education, again, for all of Canadians. And then the final one that is raw and stunning, as in, like, you will be stunned as you watch this, is... um, is a hot dogs winner, and I don't know if any of you love hot dogs, but I sure do. Um, yeah. And so it's it's the documentary about the killing of Colton Bushi. It's called We Will Stand Up. This killing happened in Saskatchewan in 2016, so not long ago. And right. it's the story of the surviving family as they go through the court process of the trial of the accused, etc. And it's not just about that. I mean, it's about their personal familial experience, which is heartbreaking and shocking and stunning, but it's also, it provides a broader context, which I think is very eye opening. And so if people wonder if racism is alive and well, and if this is, you know, um, a perceived but false lived experience that indigenous peoples talk about, you really got to see this movie. It's something else. Mm. Well, that's uh, that's quite a, a, a colorful list that you've provided, and I think our listeners will really appreciate the you know the, the commentary that you provided because not everybody wants to see the same thing, but I think there's something there for everybody, and and with the with the goal of raising that awareness and raising that level of education. So thanks for 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 giving us such thoughtful insight uh, into the recommendations. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Alicia. This was really insightful and and shed a lot of light on how, and, you know, I guess, first of all, the challenge of um, full economic participation and some of the ways that 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 can actually be done. So I thought thought that was really insightful. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks again. It's, It's really my pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity to chat. Thank you for joining the podcast today. If you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe or follow to get notified when we have an update. Thank you.